Jersey's preference law. Uh, okay, we're all just reacting to a lot of changes. I think New York and New Jersey have been kind of in a competition in the last couple of weeks to see who can pass uh, the kookiest uh, new law. New York uh, just changed uh, the guidelines for how we're doing Section 32s and settlements in New York, so they're going to completely upend some things. And New Jersey said, oh, really? Uh, hold my beer. Watch this new crazy thing I'm going to try. And so today, uh, hopefully we'll have a little fun, and we're going to talk a little bit about New Jersey's new preference law. Now, this preference law is in effect uh, as of September 30th, so it is in effect right now. And today, my goal is to talk a little bit about what the law actually says, how it's going to impact employers, what we're going to have to do, how we're going to react, why we should care, and then give you what I think are going to be our best practices moving forward and how we're going to be guiding and directing clients. Please understand that this is all completely new. Um, this law was first proposed in February, it was passed in May, and then it was signed uh, into law on September 24th, effective September 30th. So this is really brand new stuff that we're getting into. And as we're going to talk about today, a lot of the enabling regulations or the rules, uh, and particularly the enforcement and re uh, reporting provisions, are not yet set. So we're going to be talking a little bit about how we think this is going to roll out and really what we think employers should be doing to get ready and start to sort of coordinating uh, both the employment practices side of the house and the workers comp side of the house. Now this is totally live and I could see it's a very well attended webinar. I got a lot of people there. I see from um, my attendee list we've got uh, looks like just about every industry. I've got everything from waste management industry to retail. We've got uh, carriers and insured risk in there. So I'm looking forward to your questions. You can type them in as we're going along. Anything I say strikes you and you say well what, what, what is that about? Type in your question because as we're all sort of learning about this at the same time and kind of together, uh, your question, even if you think, hey, I, I shouldn't ask this, it's probably going to pertain to a lot of people on this webinar. So please feel free to ask me uh, your questions. That's what makes these things fun. As we saw from the start, sometimes it's a little goofy getting the tech to work just exactly right. Uh, but this is totally live and it is my goal to answer your questions live today. All right. So let's go through some of the basics. What does this new preference law say? And as far as I'm concerned, as far as I'm aware, this is the first time New Jersey's actually ever built a preference into its Workers' Compensation Act. Now, the law says that, quote, following a work-related injury, an employee, an employer shall, and the word shall is important because it means you must provide a hiring preference to an employee who has reached maximum medical improvement and is unable to return to the position at which the employee was previously employed for any existing and unfilled position offered by the employer for which the employee can perform the essential functions of the position. Now there's a lot in there to sort of parse and I'm going to explain to you how I'm reading this law and how I think it's going to be applied and again I've been at this for 21 years. Uh, I've done doing I, 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 my uh, bona fides are, I literally write the handbook for LexisNexis for Matthew Bender for New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law. My first job out of law school was to be the law clerk for the Division of Workers' Compensation, and I've been practicing before the division for 21 years. So I think I've got enough experience to sort of address what happens when a, a crazy new law like this comes out. And here's the things that I want to uh, stress. First, the law says shall. It doesn't say the employer may or will. It says shall and that means that this is going to absolutely apply to all employers with some exceptions 
It also says that the law applies when the petitioner, because that's what we call claimants in New Jersey, has reached maximum medical improvement. And that's a very specific definition. In New Jersey, it means that there is no further curative care possible. Again, it doesn't mean that the person is 100% returned to work uh, or even permanently partially disabled. It just means that there's no further curative care. And at that point, the employer is being required to offer an, uh, a position to the employee that they can fill. Uh, that is existing and unfilled at the time the employee reaches maximum medical improvement. And so there's some, some words in there, some parsing that we're going to go through as we kind of step through how we think this is going to impact employers that I think is important. So the new law on its face says it applies to all employers with more than 50 employees. So that's a lot of employers. Uh, the law also says it does not apply to any contractors subject to prevailing wage law. What does that mean? It means that the state has chosen to exempt itself and all of its public works that are being done by contractors predominantly from uh, having to comply with this own law. And uh, presumably it's because in those prevailing wage uh, job scenarios, and those are typically unionized employments, uh, we're recognizing that there's tons of union uh, contracts and rules which would prevent us from offering positions this way. And it would certainly, uh, I'm sure the state considered this, it's going to drive up the cost of business if we're trying to uh, uh, find accommodated positions for our uh, permanently or partially permanently disabled workforce, right? So here is the state immediately exempts itself uh, from uh, being subject to this law. The second thing that's been exempted uh, is all its athletes employed by professional sports teams. So I guess the Jets and the Giants uh, aren't going to be uh, exposed to this. Uh, what professional sports teams uh, means is going to be extended, I think, because we've got a lot of uh, horse racing. We've got uh, a lot of minor league baseball teams in New Jersey that are going to be impacted. So, you know, interestingly, they've chosen very specifically two industries, mainly public contracting on public uh, works projects and professional athletes uh, from um, having to uh, abide by this new preference, this hiring preference. Uh, also, any employer with less than 50 employees uh, is going to be exempted as well. And I mean, typically they are already exempted from many of our uh, workplace rules if you have less than 50 employees. All right, first reminder, live presentation, ask me questions. It makes this so much more fun and interesting. So what's the impact that we're going to presume this is going to have on most employers? Uh, first, um, and this is the first time as far as I can uh, determine, and I scan through all of our uh, workers' compensation law, I've never seen a preference created. I've never seen any hiring rules created from a workers' compensation law. And again, workers' compensation is not considered an employee benefit law. It never has been, right? That's a separate whole uh, series of laws. It's always been considered a compensation for injury or a harm. So the fact that it's now going to be utilized to command employers how they're going to offer employment and who they're going to offer employment to, that's new, that's different. As far as I can tell, that's unprecedented uh, in New Jersey. Uh, also remember that New Jersey is an impairment state. New Jersey's workers' compensation awards are not ostensibly based on the person's ability to return to work or earn wages, right? The, the post-injury wages are really not uh, in something that we consider in determining the amount or nature of permanent residual disability in New Jersey or their compensation. It's always been a source of frustration for employers. They say to me, hey, Greg, how can this person be 50% permanently partially disabled? Uh, the judge is just giving them an award because uh, they got a surgery and they had an MRI. 
but Greg, they're back to work doing the same job they used to do, full-time, full duty. In fact, they're asking me to do overtime or they're working even more hours. And the reason I say to them, hey, New Jersey's an impairment state. Essentially, uh, awards are given out based on the amount of medical treatment received and the person's recovery. It really doesn't have to do much with their working ability. So this is the first time that the workers' compensation law is really diving into and, and really going to be uh, directing some kind of return to work. It's never been that important in New Jersey workers' compensation law for determining permanency awards or payments. Next, I believe this law is probably already redundant. New Jersey is one of the last states that still has a second injury fund. And the second injury fund's idea or the, the spirit behind the second injury fund, that's section 95 of our act, by the way, was to encourage employers to hire people who already had a prior injury at some other workplace or uh, perhaps they're a veteran, they've got a combat injury or something like that. That, that was the point of it. So it's, we already have this in the law to protect people who already had a prior injury and help them transition back to the workplace. So very strange that they decided to do this again. Again, I believe that's redundant. The other interesting thing about this is as I read this, it doesn't really have an enforcement provision. You know, they love to threaten us with things and tell you what happens if you don't comply with the law. And just let's be careful that the New Jersey workers' compensation judges do already have enforcement powers in various ways, and they can penalize em employers in various ways. Uh, so for example, uh, under section 28.1, if the employer fails to play temporary disability, that's wage compensation or, re or, or uh, for short-term disability, the judge has the power to penalize them up to 25% of the eventual award. Um, there's penalties, for example, for not filing reports. I mean, they're not big, uh, but there are small monetary penalties up to $25 for failing to file a first report of injury. This one doesn't bother to really give us a enforcement provision or even a notice requirement. So it's gonna be interesting to see what the uh, workers' compensation division decides to do in any enabling regulations or rules that they eventually come up with to determine if they're going to come up with some kind of in enforcement scenario. Now, I wanna remind everybody though that the Workers' Compensation Act in New Jersey does sort of contain a catch-all, and that catch-all is section 39.2 which essentially says that the judge of compensation has the authority and the ability to penalize an employer who fails to substantially uh, or materially uh, comply with the requirements of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. So it'll be interesting to see if any judge attempts to uh, utilize that enforcement power under 39.2, which again is quite broad uh, to try to uh, shoehorn in a penalty or some kind of uh, uh, sanction against an employer who maybe doesn't follow this law to the letter of the law. Of course, I can imagine that my uh, opposing counsel will be raising this in an attempt to gin up uh, maybe an additional settlement or resolution. However, it gets into murky territory because remember, uh, if you are discriminating against your own employee under Section 120 of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law, uh, the, the employee may have a claim against you, which is not going to be covered by your workers' compensation policy. And again, uh, if you're discriminating against or refusing to accommodate or refusing to offer one of these employment preferences, perhaps they could bring a claim under that provision. So that is yet to be determined. Obviously, uh, as we're defending employers, we're going to be doing everything possible to dispute this. And again, I think the law is very very broad, it's rather vague, and it doesn't include, to my reading, any specific enforcement provision. And so uh, should there be any attempt to enforce it, we would absolutely want to be at the forefront of pushing back on that and forcing the judges to explain exactly where they think this, uh, where how they're enabled uh, to enforce it. All right, how do you comply? You've got more than 50 employees. Uh, 
you're not a public works contractor or are subject to prevailing wage law, so you don't have a unionized public works uh, workforce. And unfortunately, you don't own the New York Giants or Jets, which practice and are based out of New Jersey. What do you do? How do you comply? All right, here's our best uh, advice. First, the law specifically says any existing unfilled job. And so we believe our interpretation is this does not require the creation of a new job for your permanently partially disabled employee. Uh, your employees reached MMI. This doesn't mean uh, for every employee out there, we've got to go and create some new accommodated job just so we could offer it to them. If you don't have a job available for them, and I can think of many uh, employments where accommodated work might not be possible. Maybe it's an employee uh, employer uh, that's in a dangerous employment. Uh, maybe we need everyone to be able to move quickly because you know there's materials moving in and out of our, our warehouses or our workplace. For whatever reason, you don't have to go out and create a new accommodated job, and that's very key for us to consider here. This is not like the ADA, uh, this is not like other laws that are applying to employers where you may be required if you do have that type of work available and you are extending that option for some employees to uh, extend it to others. Next, if you have an employee who's working in a lighter duty job that maybe your permanently partially disabled employee could now do, this doesn't mean you have to fire Joe to hire George uh, and give them that job. That does not require that. Again, it says, any open and unfilled existing position. It doesn't mean uh, we are going to take people out of current positions and uh, have to create a preference for this person uh, who might have a permanent partial disability. <clears throat> I touched on this before, but I think it's really key. There's no enforcement provision, but there's also no reporting provision. So presumably, uh, it's going to be uh, up to the petitioner to determine at the time they're at MMI if there are any unfilled positions. There doesn't seem to be any requirement that they be reported to the state or listed anywhere. Uh, it doesn't, as far as I can tell, there's no discovery process in which our opposing counsel is gonna be able to ask us well, what opposing, uh, what open positions are there uh, available. And because of that, again, I think this is gonna be extremely difficult for uh, the division to try to enforce if anybody was ever to try to press it. Uh, the last thing is, uh, we could try to do substantial compliance. And the answer here really is, if at the time of maximum medical improvement, you, the employee is still attached to the employer, meaning they haven't been separated, they haven't resigned, and you do have an open, unfilled position that they could apply for, you gotta let them apply, and then presumably we've gotta give them some type of preference uh, in, uh, in filling that, that role. Now, interestingly, what this preference entails uh, or how it is to be applied, it's not discussed anywhere. And so we can consider this to be analog to other circumstances or other employment situations where certain employees are given a preference, often in a union environment, often in our first responder environment, uh, we see that uh, occurring. <clears throat> but this law absolutely does not define that and doesn't provide us with any guidelines uh, uh, that we would have to apply uh, to sort of apply to the situ situation. And so, I really think that if you have five employees or five people apply for the job, what is meaning giving a preference to your previously employed but now partially disabled employee mean? Uh, that is not defined. That is gonna have to be determined ultimately over time via case law. Uh, do you still have the option to go out there, interview other people, uh, maybe choose a better candidate for that role? Yeah, I, I think so but the employer should be advised. And this is gonna be the moment we're gonna talk about how we comply or how we do this. Uh, we're gonna talk about how we're gonna coordinate both sides of the house, workers comp and then the employment side of the house. So 
what are some of the risks for our employers who are trying to comply with this law? Well, the first one is it doesn't address the common situation where the employee is no longer with us, right? That's a very common situation. The employee has moved on uh, during their period of convalescence. Uh, maybe the employers restructured, closed the location, filled the job. Right. I mean, uh, under New Jersey's law, it is not retaliatory and it's not discriminatory. If you need to keep that job going, you need to keep that position filled. Someone's out on comp. You can absolutely replace them with a different person. That's fine. You don't have to keep their job open. This, there is no requirement to do that. And it is not retaliatory if you've got a valid business reason to fill that position. And so that's our recommendation. Now, the law doesn't cover the situation where the employee is no longer attached to the employer. Now, oftentimes, after there's been an accident at work, the employer will say, hey, um, this person was at fault. They weren't following our safety rules. They were using this forklift that they are not licensed to use and they shouldn't have been touching this forklift. And they drove it into the side of our building and they harmed themselves and broke the forklift. Can I terminate this employee before violating work rules, creating a safety hazard, damaging our equipment? You know, all of those reasons are valid reasons to terminate someone. Now, they're still entitled to workers' compensation benefits, absolutely entitled to compensation benefits because you're are terminating them for some for-cause reason, but that doesn't mean that you have got to keep people attached to the workforce forever. And that person then, who's no longer attached because of a valid business reason for being separated from your employment force, no longer would have that preference to that unfilled but job that they maybe could do. All right. So there is also no statement in the law as to how long this preference would last. And I think that's key. Right. Uh, someone who's been separated from the employment, uh, they've had six months of temporary or partial temporary disability. Uh, now they've reached maximum medical improvement and they decide not to come back for some reason. Uh, do they can they apply for a job two years from now and then expect that we're going to be holding that position for them? And will they still have a preference for an unfilled vacant position that's within their duties if a length of time has occurred from maximum medical improvement to the time they want to reattach to our employment workforce? I think strongly the answer to that is no. We've got to move on. And at that point, the preference, I believe, should expire if at the time of MMI, we can offer them an unfilled and accommodated position and they choose not to return. Goodbye. I think the preference should expire. But again, nobody knows the answer to that. All right. So what are we going to uh, advise clients about best practices? First of all, let me just say this is New territory, we're in a novel world right now. Nobody really knows the perfect answer here. So I'm gonna give you, again, the benefit of my experience and my review of the law. Um, I think in every individual case, you should be consulting uh, with your HR professional and your workers' comp risk professional as well, and call us in. I'm happy to answer questions on it, call in your defense counsel. But here's what I think best practices are gonna be going forward. First, uh, your defense counsel in a litigated workers' comp case where MMI has been disputed or is it at issue and now uh, the case is going down the road, I think it's up to us defense counsel to keep this on everyone's radar and say, hey, just remember this person's getting close to MMI. Do you want them to reattach? Do we have an accommodated position? Is there a way we can get them to come back to the workforce or do we not want them? Because that decision is going to have to be made pretty early whether or not we want this person to reattach. I think we're going to have to consider separation of injured workers as early as possible. And again, there are valid business reasons why you separate a injured worker. Uh, it could be that you just need to fill that position. 
right? You've got a, a, a production line and you need to keep it running. That's fine. You are allowed to hire. That is not going to be considered discriminatory or retaliatory. That's fine. Of course, it doesn't affect their opportunity to obtain workers' compensation benefits. They're still going to be entitled to all the benefits they would get. And I think everybody watching this knows that once the employee has been separated from the employment, um, their impetus uh, to come back to work is really reduced because now they're getting workers' compensation, current benefit rate, $969 a week, tax-free. It's pretty good. So, you know, we're going to be reducing that leverage we have to get them back to the workplace by being able to offer them a accommodated job. That's going to have to be balanced. We're going to have to think that through, and I think we're going to have to think it through pretty early. So considering whether separation is something you want and considering it early and then making sure that you have a valid business reason. And again, violation of a work rule, that's a valid reason. Failing to follow a safety rule, that's a valid reason. Damaging company equipment, that's a valid reason. Needing to fill the position, that's a valid reason. So there are reasons why we could separate them, but it needs to be considered uh, in totality, comprehensively. And the last thing I'm going to say in terms of best practices is look, there's going to need to be some coordination between both sides of the house, both the employment or HR side of the house and the workers' compensation professionals, whether that's uh, the uh, adjuster or the insurance professional, if you're uh, uh, insured risk, if you're self-insured, uh, hopefully you're get, you've got a very close watch on your workers' comp program and there is already good coordination between both sides of the house. But really, um, getting this communication out there early uh, is very important. If you're coming to this webinar, you're ahead of the curve because you're starting to think about these things and going to be ahead of uh, being able to educate maybe the people uh, on the HR side of the house about what obligations we might have under the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. All right. I've talked a lot, about 20 minutes. I'm hoping that everyone's had plenty of time to type in some questions for me. And again, I see as I just look at the list here of attendees, it's a great list of every single industry I see uh, represented here today. So I'm hoping there's some good questions. I'm gonna click over to the questions panel right now and see what we got. All right, something's gotta be broken with this go to webinar. I don't see any questions. That's crazy, this is new stuff. We've got a lot of attendance here today. I got a lot of people. I'm really surprised there's no questions. Is anyone just embarrassed to ask a question? That's okay. I always just read uh, your first name, and I read your question out loud so everybody can hear it, uh, and then I, um, I uh, answer the question as best I can, so I'm not calling you out. And all right, thank you, goodness. Sarah, thank you for giving me a question. I feel like this was a mercy question, okay, a mercy question, but I appreciate that. So she says, Greg, how does this apply to seasonal employers? And the answer is, it does. Although all the provisions of the Workers' Compensation Act absolutely apply to seasonal employers, uh, just the same as they apply to uh, you know, permanent employers or non-seasonable employers. Uh, so the interesting moment is, hey, um, we don't really have a light duty or accommodated position because everybody was hired for the summer and, you know, we closed down the pool and all the lifeguards are, are gone and bye-bye. Um, so there can't, I don't think you're going to have exposure under this preference act because you, there is no preference. You don't need to create a new job for them that would be uh, different than any job that you currently have open and unfilled. So a good question, but I think this applies to any type of employment uh, at all. Um, Nate asked me a question. It's a little bit off topic, but I'm going to happy to answer it. Thank you for asking me a question. Hi, Greg. I'm new to New Jersey workers' comp law. Welcome. We all were at some point, so welcome aboard. Uh, can you briefly go over the concept of a reopener? Yeah. 
Uh, let me tell you, New Jersey's got a hilarious system of reopeners. Under Section 27 of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law, any case which is not closed by way of Section 20, which is a lump sum dismissal, is subject to a reopener should the petitioner show that their condition has materially worsened. All right, and this, we're focusing, by the way, on a reopener on medical worsening, not, hey, I can't get a job or I can't hold a job. It's medical worsening, okay? So they've got to come in and show my, my condition's worsened and I can't do the same activity I was able to do at the time my uh, settlement was resolved. They've got two years from their last date of compensation or last payment of compensation. And you can bet that petitioner's attorneys are very aware of this and they send out a little postcard or a little note in the mail and say, hello, hi, it's about two years. Do you want to come back in for your next workers' compensation claim? Because your condition has worsened, hasn't it? And what they do is they send their petitioner back to the same IME doctor who found them to be totally and completely disabled. And they get a new report saying now they're even worse than totally and completely disabled. And generally speaking, the reopeners that are brought in New Jersey under Section 27 are then resolved for a lump sum dismissal value. <clears throat> generally, not a lot. It's really, we really treat them almost like nuisance cases. Uh, generally speaking, the petitioner doesn't really have any interim care, doesn't have any interim treatment. Really, the impetus for them to go out and maybe get a new medical report is their attorney communicating with them. That's the vast majority of cases, maybe 90% of them. And when they come back into workers' compensation court as a reopener under Section 27, we then resolve them uh, pursuant to Section 20 for a lump sum dismissal, which itself is not subject to a reopener. So you get kind of that full and final closure. Interestingly, uh, it used to be that almost you know two-thirds of cases would uh, come back uh, you would settle the case and they would come back on a reopener. But more recently, we've seen sort of a change in the Division of Workers' Compensation where they're more likely to approve Section 20s. I really think that's been an impact of COVID and going virtual, where the judges are a little bit more willing to uh, approve a Section 20, which is a lump sum dismissal. But generally speaking, the bias in the division is that the case should not be resolved by full and final the first time it is brought before the court. And so in New Jersey, you have this scenario where almost every case uh, will we'll go to the court and we'll judge, we want to do a Section 20 lump sum dismissal. Can we do it? And both sides want to do it. And the judge will say, I don't, I don't like approving those. And the reason is basic paternalism or trying to protect the petitioner from their own bad decisions. And then uh, the case gets resolved and then the petitioner comes back within two years and then comes in for their reopener and we settle at that time. So it is sort of a practice in the state that most cases are gonna come back on a reopener and then at that time get closed full and final. So Nate, I hope I asked that question. Um, <clears throat> okay, Laura asked a great question, which is Greg, do you feel employers are able to require fit for duty physical exams for any posted positions? Absolutely, right? I think they have to go through the same uh, employment application process that everybody else is going through. Yeah, they've got a preference for the job if they can meet all those requirements, but it doesn't mean you change the requirements for that open, unfilled position that they would that could accommodate their current level of physical disability. So great question, Laura, but yes, you can absolutely do fit for duty. Uh, that's not a problem. Any type of pre-employment testing or physical you wanna do to make sure that they can actually achieve it. In this instance, uh, perhaps a functional capacity evaluation would be useful. I consider the functional capacity evaluation really the gold standard, and it's also going to be useful in resolving the workers' compensation case and reaching a settlement in it. You know, I think the functional capacity evaluation is relatively objective. They're done relatively 
scientifically, and I think they're relatively useful in a New Jersey workers' comp case. And remember, you can require a functional capacity evaluation in New Jersey. Other states we practice in or other jurisdictions we're in, we can't require a functional capacity evaluation. You've got to go through a lot of hoops to get one. New Jersey, you can, and again, generally rather objective and rather scientific. So, all right. Um, good. Well, I'm glad there were some questions. Um, I see Tracy has a hand raised, but I don't see a question from you, Tracy, so I don't know what to do with that. If you could type in a question, I'd be happy to answer it for you. Um, I think I got all the questions that were asked. I'm seeing if there's any other hand raises. Uh, oop, Tracy says, don't worry, Greg, raise my hand in error. Okay, I appreciate that. Cool. Good. All right, everybody, thanks for joining me. I, if I if you got questions that come up, if you have an insured location or you have a specific instance you want to talk through with me, please feel free to call me or email me. I'm always happy to talk about these. As you can tell, I get very jazzed uh, about New Jersey workers' compensation law. We've got a great workers' comp department uh, in our New Jersey practice uh, that's ready, willing, and able to help. Uh, and Tracy says, hey, Greg, these are the best webinars. Thank you. Thank you for that. That means a lot. I appreciate it, Tracy. All right, everybody.